The following program was made possible by a grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities. American citizens have the right to be provided work so that they can support their families decently and properly. Now is the time to fight, to fight for the best interests of our city, and we ask Public housing was finally recognized as a proper function of government. It's not done by speeches. The LaGuardia Archives at LaGuardia Community College of the City University of New York presents The Dreamer and the Doer, The Life and Work of Fiorello LaGuardia, with narrator Tony LoBianco. to recall Fiorello. The one event they seem to remember best is LaGuardia, the little flower, reading the comics over the radio. It happened in 1945 during a strike of the newspaper deliverers. LaGuardia loved children, and he didn't want them to be disappointed when the Sunday comics didn't arrive. So he read the comics during his regular weekly radio broadcast. And crash! She crashes on its head. Knocked out. And say, children... What does it all mean? It means that dirty money never brings any luck. Strikes like the one involving the newspaper deliverers were nothing new to Fiorello. He had dealt with many strikes during his three administrations, winning praise from both labor and management along the way. Harry Van Arsdale was one of the city's recognized labor leaders. When Mayor LaGuardia became mayor, I think they were the darkest years uh, working people and all of the citizens and when I uh, first became the responsible officer of our union in 1933 and came to know him as the chief executive of our city he was a great inspiration uh, to our officers and to our members he gave us encouragement he gave us guidance and in every possible way he was an inspiration to us Van Arsdale was speaking for organized labor in the private sector, which considered LaGuardia a friend and supporter throughout his entire political career. Organized labor in the public sector was a different matter. As the employer of the city's public employees, Fiorello took a strong position against the unions. Louis Yavner worked in Mayor LaGuardia's administration. Now that I know so much myself about how government operates, I think that he must have felt that he would lose control over the budget. He would lose control over developing the city programs if strong unions were to come about in the city government and engage in real collective bargaining. And so he tried to block it at every turn, and he substantially succeeded in that. Fiorella LaGuardia was always the champion of the underdog. He took up the cause of labor when he came to New York. In a 1956 interview, president of the Amalgamated Clothing Workers of America, Jacob Potowski, described LaGuardia's early involvement with labor. Organized labor 
we regarded him as one of our own, and we supported him uh, wholeheartedly. He's been uh, very active in our uh, early beginnings, in 19, back in 1912, when we first started organizing the city of New York. And he had just come out of law school. He was our lawyer and was very active on the picket line. In 1912, the Amalgamated Clothing Workers were out on strike to protest the appalling working conditions inside the garment industry. The workers were mostly immigrants who labored in cramped, dimly lit sweatshops for 10 to 12 hours a day for miserable wages. Fiorello not only joined their picket lines, but when some of the pickets were arrested, he defended them in court. Eventually, he helped win a favorable settlement for the Union. From there, the little flower went on to help other unions, the glassworkers, the longshoremen, the shirtwaist and dressmakers. Labor had found a new channel. Let's put a stop to the sweatshop. That's the disease we want to cure. Come out the we picket the pucks who pick the pockets of the poor, hard-working poor. Why we stitch, 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 someone's getting rich by the sweat of his sister's brow. Let's fix the wagon of this old hungry dragon. Let's trim the fat from this sacred cow. You've got to howl. It may not have happened exactly the way this portrayed on the stage in Fiorello, but LaGuardia's work did win him many supporters. A long-time activist in the city's labor movement, E. Howard Molisani remembers his father taking him down to the Union Hall to hear LaGuardia speak. That was my first uh, real acquaintance with LaGuardia. Acquaintance from, from off a platform, and, and I remember his uh, coming over to me and looking at me because I, I was as tall as I am now. I was over six foot tall, and LaGuardia was not, not always near six foot tall. <laughs> and, he looked up at me and he says, look, he says, from that mountain, you can come down and do some work. Later on, when I went outside and I uh, asked uh, my father, what should we do? He said, oh, don't worry, you've got plenty of work to do now. He says, you've got to go out and you've got to hand out papers and leaflets and cards and stuff like that. I said, well, I don't want to do that. So the first says, oh, no, LaGuardia's going to run. So I said, well, if it's LaGuardia, I'll, I'll do it for him. But nobody else will I do it for. In 1916, Fiorello won his first election to Congress, where he served until 1932. At the outset of his career in politics, LaGuardia had significant support from organized labor. It was unusual for workers to vote for a Republican. Labor generally backed a Democrat or a Socialist. But workers had begun to regard LaGuardia as a friend. Over the next decade and a half, he would become organized labor's tireless champion. Howard Motosani recalls a LaGuardia speech in 1920 to a meeting of the troubled International Ladies' Garment Workers' Union in New York. We had a meeting of some of our shop chairmen, and LaGuardia spoke to the shop chairman and told them the, of the value of their union, why it was necessary for them to maintain a union. The only strength that they had was the strength of their own numbers and the, and the willingness to fight for what was necessary to protect the workers. And, he uh, came and he spoke to the people, and his people looked at him and looked at him as if he was some kind of a god. In the 1920s, LaGuardia was one of the few legislators to speak in support of organized labor. Anti-labor sentiment was dominant in Congress, but Fiorello believed passionately in the labor movement. He also recognized 
that in a heavily democratic city like New York, he needed the vote of every trade unionist to win re-election to Congress. One of the important issues of the period was bringing an end to child labor. Fiorello battled for it tirelessly, even at the risk of his own health. In 1924, he wired the Women's Trade Union League. Leaving sickbed, express purpose, vote for child labor amendment. The resolution passed, but the amendment was never ratified by the states. This didn't stop Fiorello. Years later, after he became mayor, LaGuardia was still pressing for ratification. It will eventually be ratified, and that can be stated with definite certainty because the overwhelming majority of the American people believe in the fullest protection for American childhood. Fiorello's effort was not limited to the cause of child labor. As a congressman, he repeatedly sided with the workers in labor disputes. Walking shoulder to shoulder with striking garment workers in New York, denouncing the Pullman Company when it opposed efforts by its black railroad porters to form a union. Even taking on the government in Washington to demand pay hikes for federal employees. Another problem that drew Fiorello's attention was the desperate condition of miners and their families in the Pennsylvania coal camps. This song from the period captures some of the despair that afflicted them. A miner was bleeding his home for his work. He heard his little child scream. He went to the side of the little girl's bed. Oh, Daddy, I've had such a dream. Oh, Daddy, don't work in the mine today. For dreams have so often come true. Oh, Daddy, my Daddy, please don't go away. I never could live without you. The miners struck unsuccessfully in 1925. In 1928, they went out on strike again to protest a series of wage cuts. This time, Fiorello traveled to the coal fields to meet with United Mine Workers leader John L. Lewis and to talk with the striking miners. To reporters afterwards, Fiorello denounced the irresponsible behavior of the coal operators. And once back in Washington, he attacked the coal bosses again, this time on the floor of Congress. The Norris LaGuardia Act was Fiorello's crowning achievement, and it came during his last term in office. For years, while LaGuardia championed House legislation to prohibit court injunctions against union activities, Senator George Norris of Nebraska had been proposing similar legislation in the Senate. Their efforts were soundly defeated during the 20s. But with the Depression, Congress changed its attitude toward organized labor. In 1932, the Norris-LaGuardia bill, restricting the use of court injunctions against labor unions, passed overwhelmingly. John McCormick, former Speaker of the House, was a young congressman at the time. In a 1956 interview, he recalled the struggle over the bill on the House floor. The late Friolo LaGuardia introduced this important and far-reaching bill in the National House of Representatives. It was bitterly opposed by the big interests. I well remember this historic legislative battle of progress and of the emancipation of human beings. 
The bill passed the House under the leadership of Mr. LaGuardia. His leadership was superb. The Norris-LaGuardia Act was the first legislation of the era designed to redress the balance between labor and management. For Fiorello, victory was sweet, capping a decade of struggle on behalf of working people. Peter Rizzo was a LaGuardia campaign worker. I believe his record in Congress supporting labor and uh, helping to create labor unions and seeing that people earn a decent living, an honest day's work for an honest day's pay, was, I think, the greatest thing that LaGuardia achieved in Washington. LaGuardia hoped to continue the labor reform he fought for in Washington in New York City after he was elected mayor in 1933. During the 1930s, the city's unions were struggling to achieve better working conditions an eight-hour day, and higher wages. Ken Chabelle worked at a wholesale dry goods company during the Depression. We had, uh, as I recall, one or two paid holidays a year. One of them was July 4th. And when we left the place on the evening prior to the holiday, there was a sign next to the time clock, don't get sunburned. And the idea was that if you did get sunburned, you would be stiff and you wouldn't really be able to work as hard as you should. And the day after the holiday, one of the employers stood at the door and if you were burned to a crisp and it was rather obvious, he sent you home. And you didn't get paid for that day. A former cafeteria worker, Loretta Zaliga, recalls conditions in a city cafeteria where workers were allowed to eat on the job but only the second-rate dishes. The biggest thing was, all you could eat was the garbage food. You could eat the meatloaf, you could eat the hamburger, you could eat the tripe, you could eat all the soup we wanted, but none of the good stuff, you know, the thing that, like, say, like, um, a roast beef or anything like that. And even to desserts, like, you could have all the rice pudding and jello, but God forbid you should want a piece of strawberry shortcake. They could do whatever they wanted to you, they could tell you to come in, and then when you got there, they could tell you to go home. Zaliga became a union organizer, but many workers didn't want to join unions. With so few jobs available during the Depression, they were afraid of being fired. Bill Michelson was an organizer for the United Store Workers. Today, it's hard to recall the fears and terrors that took place with literally not knowing whether you would continue to work. Exactly, 8.05, hey, where's my other sock? I've got a job, so help me, Bob, I've got to get up and go to work. Must be there on the dock. I hope my coffee's hot. Bring on those eggs, those scrambled eggs, I've got to get up and go to work. I'll do my best to make some dough so I can come home and say, we're out of debt, it's really so, you'll never regret our wedding day. If I should stay in bed, we'd soon be in the red. One kiss and then, like all good men, I've got to get up and go to work. In New York City, as in the rest of the country, workers and their unions faced an uphill battle, even after the passage of the Norris-LaGuardia Act. In 1934, shortly after LaGuardia became mayor, he intervened in a dispute between the taxicab union and cab company owners over a wage increase. Not only did the confrontation capture the headlines, it also became the subject of a popular one-act play by Clifford Odets, Waiting for Lefty. At the end of the play, 
one of the cab drivers, Agate Cola, speaks out to his fellow workers. Hear it, boys? Hear it? Hell, listen to me. Coast to coast, we're stormbirds of the working class, workers of the world. We'll die for what is right. Well, what's the answer? Strike! Louder! And strike they did, ripping off the doors of their taxis and overturning them on the city streets. Police Commissioner John O'Ryan wanted to intervene with force. Knock a few heads if you had to, to break up the strike. But LaGuardia prevented it, which irritated O'Ryan. August Heckscher is a former city official and author of a book on LaGuardia. A difference of this kind between the police commissioner and the mayor had the gravest implications for municipal government. The charge that a mayor is soft on violence or disorder is enough to fatally damage the head of most administrations. And this is particularly true when the mayor is known as LaGuardia was for his sympathy with the underdog. Fiorello stuck to his position until the crisis was resolved. Then a few months later, the mayor went after the police again, this time for using unnecessary force during a strike by 14,000 knit workers. At the same time, the mayor was busy using the power of his office to help the unions in other areas. Maurice Forge explains that LaGuardia was the author of a mandatory union clause in the city franchise regulations. When he became mayor, he put down, uh, put in a clause in the franchise that every company, every, every private entrepreneur uh, that did any contractual work with the city had to have a union contract with a recognized union. Or at least had to have a record of fair labor practice that did not break any union or didn't re refuse to deal with a union. That was before the Wagner Act. The National Labor Relations Act, known as the Wagner Act after its author, New York Senator Robert Wagner, was passed by Congress in 1935. By supporting the right of unions to organize and resort to collective bargaining, the act sought to put labor on an equal footing with management. This, of course, had been Fiorello's goal all along. But to say that he was simply a pro-labor mayor would be to misrepresent his record in office. More often, he played the role of skillful mediator between labor and management. In March 1935, for example, he succeeded in preventing a strike by employees of the Brooklyn Edison Company. And in 1936, his personal intervention prevented a walkout by 105,000 workers in the dress industry. The New York Times commented, Mayor LaGuardia is fast making a reputation as an industrial conciliator. One strike after another in this city has been averted through his good offices. In 1937, Fiorello went a step further and appointed a city industrial relations board to help resolve labor disputes. Not only did the board succeed in settling strikes, it prevented many others from ever breaking out. But as Fiorello knew, bargaining between unions and management could often turn into a long, drawn-out affair. Louis Yavna recalls that when issues proved intractable, the mayor would often step in. He made City Hall a special mediation and arbitration and conciliation office so that whenever there was a major strike on, he would bring people down to City Hall. And I remember on a number of occasions, he would insist that they stay overnight. He wouldn't let them go until they reached some kind of agreement. Fiorello loved the dramatic gesture. In fact, it was one of the hallmarks of his administration. 
Historian Richard K. Lieberman tells the story of Fiorello's intervention in the coal deliverer's strike during the winter of 1940. It was a bitter winter, and New Yorkers were suffering. LaGuardia realized that if he didn't get involved in this strike, it would be settled sometime in the middle of July. He calls the coal deliverers, calls the bosses, says, at 6 o'clock tonight, I'm making a public offer over WNYC. I'm going to settle the strike tonight. You better be there. Ten minutes to six, the coal deliverers show up. The bosses show up. They tell LaGuardia, we don't have a settlement. He says, in ten minutes, I'm going on the air to announce a public offer to settle the strike. Go back and negotiate. Ten minutes later, they come back. They've got a settlement. The mics go on. LaGuardia is on air and over WNYC. He announces to New Yorkers, we've settled the coal strike. That's the way LaGuardia handled unions. That's the way he handled the bosses. That's the way LaGuardia got things done in New York City. Historian Josh Freeman says, in those days, Fiorello's position was not unusual. I think LaGuardia and many public employees as well believe that civil service provides an alternative to the unions as a system of protection. Certainly the notion of public employee unionism was not widely accepted. The notion of signing contracts with public employees was less accepted. And the right to strike by public employees was accepted by almost no one. While New York's public employees had no unions, they did organize into various associations. Among these was the Civil Service Forum, founded in 1914 by Frank Pryor. Pryor was closely allied with Tammany, and he relied on political influence to improve wages and working conditions for the Forum's members. When LaGuardia was elected, Pryor's influence declined, and Fiorello had no intention of letting any new leader or powerful union take his place. Historian Bernard Bellish. As long as Mayor LaGuardia dominated New York politics, public sector workers were generally treated as second-class citizens. LaGuardia opposed the endeavors of city employees to organize themselves into viable unions. And he went even further to condone the indiscriminate transfer to distant work sites of some public workers who sought to unionize other civil servants. Most progressive union leaders had come to look upon LaGuardia as their champion and went along with his view that public workers should not be organized. One union head who disagreed was Mike Quill, the scrappy leader of the Transportation Workers Union. During the early decades of this century, the city's mass transit system was the scene of stormy confrontations and violent strikes as employees fought deplorable working conditions. Out of these protests, the TWU was born. Josh Freeman. In 1933 and 34, a whole series of groups of transit workers who usually did not know one another were looking towards unionism solve their problems. Some of these groups were led by communists who had targeted the transit industry for organizing. Then another group, one of the most important, consisted of Irish workers, many of whom were veterans of the Irish Republican Army. Mike Quill belonged to this latter group. Quill had come to America in the 20s and had gotten a job as a change maker on the subway system. And in addition, there were other groups of workers as well talking about organizing. And in the spring of 1934, Many of these groups came together under the umbrella of the communists to form what became the Transport Workers Union. That same year, Maurice Forge came to work for the TWU. Forge became one of Mike Quill's closest associates. He was an effective leader 
number one, because he could reach people in a way that they knew that he meant them. And they understood that what he was fighting for was precisely what they were fighting for. They were, everybody was Mike Quill's fellow traveler. By 1937, under the leadership of Quill and others, the TWU finally won recognition in the privately run transit lines. The union went on to win higher salaries, shorter hours, paid vacations, and pension and medical plans for its members. These victories by an aggressive union accorded with LaGuardia's views on the rights of the working people, as long as they worked in private industry. But in 1940, the city took control of the private transit lines. Fiorello had always been opposed to unions among public employees. According to Maurice Forge, LaGuardia was especially opposed to the TWU and Mike Quill. LaGuardia and Mike, despite their tremendous differences, had something similar. They both were bent upon doing it and doing it their way. And I think that there was quite a clash of characters. When the private transit lines were merged with the city system, the Transit Workers Union forced LaGuardia to accept the existing labor contracts. Fiorello refused to recognize the union, saying it had no bargaining power, no right to strike, and that the city didn't even have to abide by the existing contracts with the transit workers. But the union was ultimately weakened. Former transit worker Maurice Forge. We lost the union shop. We lost the security of, of the Jews. And uh, we had to survive on the basis of our own selling ourselves to the workers. In other words, idealistically or ideologically or, or by lowering the goods. So for about seven years, the union was in limbo. We had to fight for each member individually and had to settle grievances by, by guerrilla warfare and by, by public uh, outcries and by picketing and stuff like that. And that was the, the indirect or direct uh, heritage of LaGuardia's uh, position. LaGuardia's achievement in the labor field, not only as mayor, but also during his congressional career, were substantial. From his efforts to eliminate child labor to the Norris LaGuardia Act, to his work in restoring the balance between labor and management in New York City, Fiorello did more for America's workers than most other politicians of his generation. Harry Van Osdale may have put it best. He gave us encouragement, he gave us guidance, and in every possible way, he was an inspiration to us. Fiorello LaGuardia, the dreamer and the doer, has been made possible by a grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities. Most of the archival material for this series was provided by the LaGuardia Archives, by the New York City Municipal Archives and Records Center, and by WNYC. The project director is Richard K. Lieberman. The narrator was Tony Lobianco. Project coordinator, Susan Farkas. The scriptwriter, Dick Worth. Script consultant for this program was Josh Freeman. The administrator is Edwina Estrella. Original theme music is by Mark Lamparello. The mixing engineer, Gary Fink. Associate producer, Susan Vernon. The producer, Tom Vitale.